Have you ever spent 10 minutes eating a single raisin? Yeah, me either. I, I expect that few of us have. But it turns out that doing so can be the first step toward a healthier and more robust sex life. We're going to talk about that today, the sex more than the raisin, on this episode of Mindful. My name is Eric, I'm the communications person at the Canadian Psychological Association, and I'm joined today by Catherine McLaren, the CPA's Membership and Association Development Lead, who's going to be a co-host. We're going to talk about the book, Better Sex Through Mindfulness, a guide to cultivating desire, and the companion workbook that has just been published. Let's meet the author. So I'm Lori Brado. I'm a professor in obstetrics and gynecology at UBC. I hold a Canada Research Chair in Women's Sexual Health, and I'm a registered psychologist in BC. You have a very successful book, The Better Sex Through Mindfulness, A Guide to Cultivating Desire, uh, that's been out for, I think, about five years now. And you've come up with a companion workbook. I'm wondering what the difference is. Like, is this a second edition of the same book, or is this something additional? that goes with the original book? Yeah, great question. So the first book is, uh, I call it a knowledge translation product. Essentially, it's a summary and a synthesis of the science of mindfulness as it's been applied to sexuality, to women's sexual concerns specifically, to kind of introduce the concept to the world that mindfulness can be something that um, can be not just useful, but very useful for improving lots of different facets of sexual function and genital pain. And it really came from, you know, this known knowledge translation gap that we have, that most people don't read the scientific literature, that most science never gets translated out into a way that makes a difference in people's lives. So that's what the 2018 book was. And then after it was published, I and also the publisher received many, many different emails and phone calls and DMs saying, all right, sign me up. You've convinced me that mindfulness can be useful for my sexual health. How do I actually sign up for a group? So the publisher suggested that it might be a good idea to write a how-to. So it's a treatment manual. It's a companion guide and treatment manual that walks readers through all of the exercises that we've been um, testing now for, I guess, about 20 years in our, in our groups with different populations of women. And it just, it's just written in a very accessible way that anyone can pick up the book and read through and feel like they're engaging in the program as if they were sitting in our center. And the bulk of this, I think, is directed toward women, right? But uh, from what I understand, men can get something out of this as well. Uh, would you recommend that a, a man pick this up and follow the same guidelines, or is it a little bit different for uh, both genders? It's identical. The last chapter is focused on men and uh, gender diverse individuals. We've also done research on mindfulness interventions for men with erectile dysfunction, men with situational performance anxiety, prostate cancer survivors who have sexual problems. So although the, the bulk of the kind of background and justification, especially in the first book, in the 2018 book is about women, the same mindfulness strategies I use in my clinical practice with men, we just don't have the accumulation of scientific data on the studies in men that we do with women. But yeah, bottom line, I'd say any person can pick this up, ignore the gender pronouns and work through it. Terrific. And I'm hoping that before we get more into it, we can define mindfulness. Uh, we've done that on this program before, but uh, I think a refresher course for those listening now might be a good idea. What is mindfulness? And uh, obviously, it's something that we talk about in psychology a lot, but it's uh, specifically geared toward sexual health in this 
uh, circumstance. Yeah. So mindfulness, John Kabat-Zinn and others have defined as present moment non-judgmental awareness. So there's really those two co- key components. One, one is um, paying attention on purpose, and the other component, which I think is the harder one, is how we do it, and we do it non-judgmentally and with lots of compassion. Um, and so our mindful sex program has the first several weeks of introducing the person if they've never practiced mindfulness before, if they don't have a mindfulness ongoing practice on their own, it's just sort of introducing them to the well-known, you know, the body scan, uh, breath and body sensations, mindfulness of thoughts, um, eating meditations, um, mindful movement. And then I introduce exercises that progressively become more and more sexual as, you know, you turn the pages. So, for example, an earlier exercise might involve having the person practice mindfulness while they're using a handheld mirror to explore their own body just visually. And then we build on that by incorporating some self-touch and then progress to self-touch of the more erogenous zones of the body while incorporating mindfulness. So touching in a non-goal-oriented way. So really touching for the purpose of exploring sensations and noticing them rather than touching for the purpose of reaching orgasm or pleasure. And then we progress on and I talk about how do you now incorporate these skills into a partnered sexual context. Um, I remind readers of Sensate Focus, which is uh, a touching exercise that Masters and Johnson developed back in the 60s that has lots of elements of mindfulness to it, though they never described it in a mindful way. But it involves couples touching one another, one person at a time, for the purpose, again, of just observing sensations, relaxing, staying in the present moment, setting aside performance anxiety and catastrophizing, which lots of couples do in the sexual context, especially those with sexual problems. So yeah, the bottom line is we start with non-sexual mindfulness and that becomes progressively uh, sexual with time. And I think the first exercise in the workbook uh, in a non-sexual mindfulness sort of way is eating a raisin very slowly over a long period of time. Why a raisin? Like, I feel like I could eat a gummy bear very slowly and enjoy that, but a raisin seems odd to me. You could probably do it with a with a gummy bear. So we have borrowed that idea actually from many of the MBSR, MBCT groups that also introduce mindfulness to the participants through an eating practice. And the reason why it works so well in mindful sex, I mean, there's, there's quite a few reasons. First of all, we don't actually tell our our participants, our group participants or our patients, how mindfulness works for their sexual health. Rather, what they do is they engage in the mindful eating exercise. Then we ask them three key questions. One is, what did you observe? So what kinds of sensations came up for you? Secondly, how was eating the raisin in this way different from how you normally eat a raisin? And they say all sorts of things like, oh, I normally grab a handful and swallow without chewing. I never pay attention. Uh, My mind's elsewhere when I eat. And then the third question, which is really kind of the clincher, and that is how is eating the raisin in this way relevant to your sexual difficulties or your sexual health, say if it's a person without sexual difficulties. And they will just rattle off a list of compelling connections for how paying attention non-judgmentally, noticing intense sensations, experiencing brain-body connection, which which is what happens when you put the raisin to your lip and you start salivating. That's, you know, kind of a perfect example of brain-body connection, letting distractions go, and they will immediately see the connection between that practice and how mindfulness can be useful to their sexuality. So, 
more so than some of the other mindfulness practices like body scan or mindfulness of breath, I've definitely observed that the mindful eating really helps convince them that mindfulness is going to be useful for their sex lives. There's so much conversation, um, especially for people who identify as women uh, around being distracted during sex and kind of like trying to multitask. You're, you're being intimate with your partner and you're planning your grocery list or, you know, the, the next task for the day or thinking about work. And it's really fascinating. I noticed a lot of people on TikTok stitching a lot of the work that you do and talking about how mindfulness has really helped them in that regard, just to kind of stay focused and appreciate their experiences so much more. Yeah. You know, we multitask all day long, so it's no surprise that we multitask during sex, (laughs) but no one wants to admit it, especially not to a partner that you're actually, you know, planning out your Christmas shopping list while you're, while you're having sex. Um, That's, and that's on a kind of benign level. Sometimes, especially if you're a person with a sexual problem, it's not so benign. It's catastrophic worries. Will sex hurt? Will my partner leave me? Will they, will they be turned off by how I smell? Will I make a sound that is, quote, too pornographic, like all sorts of really um, irrational fears that they are convinced is, you know, that are really negative for their sexual encounter and really worried about how their partner is receiving those. So, yeah, so we get a lot of practice in the mind being everywhere else, but the present moment during sex. I think sometimes the message is a little the opposite for men, right? I mean, there is a whole pile of people who talk about the thing that they think about during sex to hold off a little bit longer so that sex can last a little longer and intentionally distracting themselves uh, so that, you know, they don't finish too quickly or, and that sort of thing, right? Think about baseball or whatever it yeah. might be. Now, is that something that you would discourage taking you out of the moment like that? So that's a, a tactic used by men who have premature ejaculation, right? So it's, you know, and the problem actually is not that they're too in the moment. The problem is that they're too in the next moment. They're, you know, what if I ejaculate too soon? What if, oh, oh my gosh, I'm getting really close to that point of ejaculatory inevitability. What if I come too quickly? So it's not that they're too in the present moment. They're too in the next moment. They're almost like hyper-focused on the future. So we have actually tested mindfulness in, in men with premature ejaculation. And it does work because what we do is we actually root them in sensations rather than in the negative and catastrophic thoughts, which ultimately actually lead them to ejaculate in the end, whereas sticking with the sensations serves to keep them there and enjoy it more and actually feel the sensations. The other place along that kind of timeline that mindfulness can be really helpful for men with premature ejaculation is to notice and and kind of detect when they are getting close to that point of ejaculatory inevitability, that kind of point of no return, so that maybe they slow down in their movements. There's also the squeeze technique, stop-start technique, different techniques that Masters and Johnson developed to kind of apply a bit of pressure to slow down the stimulation. Yeah, so maybe in a bit of a paradoxical way, mindfulness can be quite useful for these men. I like the phrase ejaculatory inevitability. It uh, just kind of rolls off the tongue. It just rolls off the tongue. I feel like somebody somewhere is going to name their album that. So we've been talking. We've been talking on this podcast uh, a fair amount, at least twice, about uh, vulvodynia uh, and specifically 
uh, pain in women uh, yeah. around sex and around other things as well. And there are certainly therapeutic solutions for that. Is mindfulness one of the big ones? Yeah, yeah. And I do cover that in, uh, I cover it much more so in the first book. So vulvodynia, I mean, vulvodynia is kind of this category, this umbrella term, which means pain in the vulva. Um, and then it's it, there are different specific diagnoses that one can have. So the most common one is provoked vestibulodynia, PVD for short, which essentially means that the person has pain with contact of the vulva or vagina, not necessarily just from vaginal penetration. It might be the seam on the jeans. It might be, you know, a tampon. It might be even walking and friction can produce pain there. So yeah, so we, based on the earliest research that John Kabat-Zinn did showing mindfulness to be quite useful for helping people with chronic, really chronic, intractable, debilitating pains to help them cope. And that was what he set out to do. He, he said, you know, in the late 70s, he said, it's not about reducing the pain intensity. It's about teaching these people to live better. So that's where the work on mindfulness applied to chronic pain started. And then fast forward over time, there's now been many, many large RCTs evaluating mindfulness for chronic pain. So about 10 years ago, I brought this up in the Department of Gynecology that I work with. And these are surgeons and gynecologists who primarily use either um, surgery to resect the tissue of the of the vagina that's painful, or they might use topical or oral medications. But the literature on those treatments is really quite poor. In fact, the medications, whether topical or oral, work no better than placebo. Surgery, you know, there's a, only a small segment of, of women who are really candidates for surgery. And so I just suggested to them, I said, you know, there's this huge literature on mindfulness for chronic pain. Vulvodynia is a chronic pain. Why don't we try it? So we did a few small pilot studies. The outcomes were promising. And we applied for some funding, got some funding, did a larger randomized controlled trial where we compared mindfulness to cognitive behavioral therapy, which you've probably talked about on, on your show before, because there's we lots, certainly of other, have, yes. lots of other Canadians who, you know, have done some amazing science in that area, Sophie Bergeron and others. And we set out to answer the question, is mindfulness as good as CBT for vulvodynia? And it turned out, and actually Sophie Bergeron was a co-investigator on our study, and she kind of trained our team on how to deliver the CBT intervention. It turned out that mindfulness was more effective for reducing pain intensity, and all the benefits were retained a year later. And then for some of our other outcomes, like pain catastrophizing, sexual distress, pain hypervigilance, mindfulness was as effective as CBT. So in our own center, our Volvodinia Center in Vancouver, as well as several others that I'm aware of, mindfulness is now part of kind of standard care. So either gynecologists are trained in just enough how to kind of talk about it and, and recommend to patients where they get more training in mindfulness, or like in our own center in Vancouver, we have a psychologist in-house that actually teaches patients mindfulness while that patient is simultaneously seeing a gynecologist and seeing a pelvic floor physiotherapist. Now, you mentioned earlier that there's a lot of data around women's sexual health and less so around men's sexual health. Why is that? Is that because we have a perception in the public at large that men are generally willing, you know, to have sex at all times and women aren't? Is that part of the stigma? Are we, is there another reason why more research has been done in the one area than the other? Yeah, I'd say on the whole, far more research has been done on men's sexuality. And I mean, there were 
billions of dollars spent on the Viagra trials, the right. Levitra trials, the Cialis trials, you know, where women's sexual health is about 20 years behind in terms of understanding the underlying nerves and pathophysiology of sexual problems, the brain mechanisms involved in sexual response. So I'd say there's been a lot more research done on men's sexuality. The area where I have seen more research on women's sexuality is on evaluating psychological treatments. And maybe that's because because there is a perception, perception in quotes, that, well, we've already got Viagra and in fact, 26 other approved Health Canada approved medications for different kinds of male sexual problems. We don't need psychological treatments. And I'm saying this lots with air quotes, because plenty of men do not refill their prescriptions. You know, Viagra is not a panacea. It doesn't address desire. It doesn't address performance anxiety, doesn't address relational conflict or things like that. So it's unfortunate that, you know, I think the success of the pharmaceuticals in men has meant that there's this feeling of, well, our work is done. You know, we've got these treatments for men. We don't need to focus on psychological treatment. So I, I think that's where we need to do some catch up is, is actually looking at these psychological treatments, including mindfulness for men. Right. I guess the idea being that, you know, as long as you can get a, an erection, then the problem is solved and we don't have to delve any deeper into it yet. Right. Yeah. But even Viagra doesn't create erections. What it does is it stops the pathway that inhibits erections. So you you still have to figure out how to get an erection in the first place. Oh, OK. I didn't realize that. I, yeah. I honestly thought you just put the pill and took the pill. Yeah. And next thing you know, that OK. Yeah. So it's a it's the PDE5 inhibitor, a phosphodiesterase 5, pathway 5 inhibitor. So it blocks the enzyme that blocks um, erection. So the reason why a lot of men don't refill their Viagra prescription is because the person writing the script doesn't say to them, all right, how are you going to get an erection? <laughs> like right. what kind of stimulation, mental, physical, you know, visual are you going to use to actually get an erection? And they're not getting this information. So they pop the pill and they kind of lie there and wait and nothing happens. So that's not, that's not how Viagra works. Interesting. <laughs> a bit of a digression from mindfulness and women's sexual health, but there you go. <laughs> a little bit, but uh, but that's I, I'm I'm learning something new. I, that's <laughs> fantastic. Well, and I guess this comes down then to a, a question of the definition of desire, right? Uh, from what I understand, and you would obviously know better than I, it, it's not the same thing as libido, right? That you know, a uh, specific desire in the moment is different than libido 24-7, I guess. I think I've heard your team talk about it as responsive and spontaneous. You got it. Is the words? Yeah. 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 So spontaneous desire, that's the desire that feels like it comes out of the blue. It just hits you. Um, you know, you might equate it with kind of physical urge and feelings deep in your stomach, um, more likely to experience it early in a relationship. And that kind of desire might lead you to seek out sex, uh, be receptive to sex, seemingly out of the blue. It's very dopamine-driven, uh, responds to novelty, those sorts of things. Whereas desire in a longer-term relationship, where things become much more familiar, where novelty is gone, where you have to plan sex because kids, you know, have to be dropped off at soccer practice, or you're working late, or you're feeling exhausted, or you're taking a medication that 
kind of impacts your energy levels means that, you know, oftentimes women, and I say women just because there's been more research on women, but this this phenomenon of responsive desire has also been found in men also. It suggests that, you know, it's completely normal and healthy to start out a sexual encounter just for a reason, not just be, not because you're in the mood for sex, but because you have a good reason or maybe a few reasons. So the reasons might be, you know, I want to have an orgasm. I want to connect with a partner. I want to feel strong. I want to get to sleep. I want to benefit from the mood altering properties of having an orgasm, what have you. So the idea is that you kind of start out from a place of neutral, but with some compelling approach reasons to lead you into the encounter. And then if the right kinds of stimulation happen, if you're paying attention, if you're mindful, if you're in the present moment, that paves the way for arousal in the body. The body starts to respond and show physiological signs of excitement. And then again, if you pay attention to that and are staying present, now you find yourself saying, okay, I want this now. Now I'm feeling desire. It wasn't necessarily in the beginning. I went to it with good reasons, but now I'm feeling desire for the sake of having sex. Um, and so it's called a responsive desire because it it happens in response to arousal. So that's the that's the distinction there. Okay. And so this can help if so one partner has a spontaneous uh, reaction, it's not the right word, but uh, is feeling spontaneous and the other needs to be convinced, then that's the path in which you would go. I well, any any one person might have spontaneous desire on certain occasions and maybe the rest of the time that person only has responsive desire. So it's it's a within person phenomenon. That person's partner might have exactly the same pattern, right? Especially in a long-term relationship. Or maybe that person's partner only has spontaneous desire. So it it really doesn't matter what the other person's pattern of desire is as long as we recognize that how we get aroused in our partnership might not be the same and that's okay. It's also okay if one person goes into a sexual encounter super in the mood, feeling lots of desire, feeling libido, and the other person does not, but goes into it willingly with consent, with a good reason, and that's okay too. So it's it's kind of an opportunity to provide some education and normalization to couples that it's totally normal to have different patterns of desire. Over time, I mean, when you're in a very long-term relationship, do your patterns of desire tend to start to mimic one another? Or do you always have the same pattern that you've had since you were, you know, 17 years old? Yeah, probably neither. Um, there's no evidence that your pattern of desire mimics your partner's. Um, it's, it's something that's really individual. And it's certainly not the case that the desire, how you experienced it as at 17 is going to stay with you again, because at a younger age, um, you're going to, you're probably engaging in more novel encounter. Everything is new. Everything is novel. So you get that nice dopamine response when things are new. And then over time, as things become more familiar, unless you're having a lot of turnover in sexual partners or continuing to do novel things for your entire life, then yeah, you're probably benefiting from that spontaneous desire all the time. So like you think about when people engage in um, extramarital relationships, so sex outside your partnership, it's novel. And so those people might feel spontaneous desire and um, be quite puzzled by it. And they might think, oh my gosh, this must mean I don't love my primary partner because I don't feel that spontaneous desire with them in the way that I do with my lover. 
well, guess what? You keep having sex with your lover and that's going to go down over time because that novelty is going to wear off. And it sounds like neither of these are wrong. Neither of these are are bad. They're just different ways of kind of um, building towards that enthusiasm. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah. Now, since you've written this book, it's been very successful. It's appeared on Netflix series. It's uh, you've been endorsed by some very high profile people. Uh, Does it change your own life? Uh, Do friends come up to you for sexual advice all the time? Do you have to, (laughs) is there a constant barrage on Twitter of people asking? dinner party like at your (laughs) house? Yes. (laughs) Oh, Oh, those are great questions. I mean, it doesn't change my life in any significant way other than, other than remind me. And this, this has been a really great kind of teaching example for my students is how important it is to translate our science to the public, that just how often our scientific data stay buried. So I had a lucky break in 2009. This is just a few years after I started my academic appointment. Um, I had a splash on the front cover of the New York Times um, from one of our, one of my first studies of mindfulness and sex and cancer survivors. And the next day I had 22 publishers contact me and say, oh my gosh, like you need to, you know, you need to write a book on this topic of mindful sex. And that was in 2009. And I said, you know what, the science is nowhere near convincing yet. We have so much more data to collect, to be able to really understand, does this work? How does it work for whom, how long are the benefits? So, we methodically went through, <laughs> did, you know, rolled up our sleeves, wrote the grants, got the got the funding, did the studies. Um, but then after that, you know, there were a few publishers that kept knocking on the door and ultimately I, I went with Greystone. So I think that for me has been um, a really important teaching point that I often share with my other academic colleagues. And that is, you know, you're all doing such great science, get it out there into the public. I mean, that's, that's why taxpayers pay us to do research is to ultimately make discoveries that translate into people's lives, make them live better, make them healthier, you know, improve our healthcare system, that sorts of things. So I think that's been the biggest thing that's affected me personally is being completely convinced that, you know, it's going to sound so cliche, but like that science makes a difference. You know, if you weren't convinced of that, look at the COVID pandemic. You know, we've never seen from idea to discovery to translation something happen as quick as as the COVID vaccine. So so that's changed me the most. Um, And yeah, I do get asked at, you know, dinner parties. Actually, the I think um, on a very personal level, um, the place where I've seen the biggest changes in my parents um, and it's because I, I grew up in a very ultra conservative Italian Catholic household where you didn't talk about sex. You didn't think about sex. You know, there was none of that. So I was a late bloomer. I learned about sex later in my 20s. And now my parents ask me questions all the time. They, you know, they continue to have a very vibrant sex life. And they ask me questions all the time. My dad recently had prostate surgery and he was asking me, when can I, Lori, when can I start engaging in sex again? I'm like, dad, that's a question for your urologist, not your sex therapist daughter. Like, <laughs> so that's been kind of fun to, to watch that is yeah. That kind of my parents evolve over time. <laughs> 
That's kind of terrific. I like to picture a Thanksgiving dinner where that's the topic of conversation rather than yeah. some sort of polarizing political discussion. Right. I agree. Much better. You're gentle. You you really kind of hope for extra guests around the table in that <laughs> conversation. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess, you know, knowledge translation is kind of what we're trying to do here with this podcast is really a knowledge translation project. And I'm wondering if you think maybe that it was a little bit easier to get that knowledge translated, that book published and eyes on the book because it is about sex in the notion that sex sells, right? We see a lot of studies that indicate, you know, for example, breast cancer is the biggest uh, fundraising platform because it has breasts in it and that sells a little more than say a prostate cancer or lung cancer or that sort of thing. Uh, is it a little easier when you're talking about sex to get knowledge out there? Ah, good question. I, because I've, I don't usually spread other kinds of knowledge besides sex. So I personally have no comparison. Um, I, I, I guess I would say yes to a certain extent because people are you know drawn to the topic either because they want to improve their own sex lives or they're really struggling in their sex lives and they're too embarrassed to talk to a family doctor so they're quite hungry for information on the other hand i have also personally experienced and have many of my colleagues that our work as sex researchers is maybe not taken as seriously as other facets of health and you know, even the funding agencies that fund me today, early on when I was doing this work, I would have to couch my interest in sexual health in things like cancer or metabolic disease or other conditions that were taken more seriously. And then I would sort of tuck some questions about sex into those studies, but my real interest was in sexuality. So yeah, I'd say that there's a there's a different level of scrutiny because it is sexuality and and because sexual scientists really do want to be taken seriously because all sorts of assumptions can be made about, oh, why are you studying this? You know, are you are you a freak? Are you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you have your own sexual problems and that's why you're studying this. So, yeah, I'd, I'd say that it's a both and situation. Yeah, I imagine. So now has that changed over the years? Is it easier now to get funding for studying sexual sexuality that or you know like have the funders come around i guess is, is yeah. what I'm it seems like they ought to have in the last decade or so yeah yeah definitely and in canada that's been the case you know with a feminist government that um, has paid more attention to mental health to women's health issues and we've we have seen uh, an increase in the number of grants focused on sexual health in and of themselves not not sex tucked into, you know, asthma or neurological disease or other things. Um, when I was in the U.S., because I did part of my training in the U.S. at a time when it was, you know, an extremely conservative government, and I was watching my colleagues who already had grants funded to look at sexual health topics, they were at threat for having having those defunded because there was a really conservative outcry that why are we funding sexual health topics when it should be going to these, you know, more important parts of life. Um, And ultimately, that's why I left the US and came back to Canada was I sort of at the start of my career said, how on earth am I going to get funding in this environment where these really good, smart scientists are, are at risk of having their grants pulled just because they're studying sex. Right. Now we have about five minutes left and I hate to end on a super heavy note, but it looks like we're going back in that direction in many ways, right? In, in yeah. the 
ultra conservative, not talking about sex and, and certainly in the States, especially not really understanding women's reproductive health at all. Where do you see this research going in the next few years? Is Canada going to be okay? Yeah, um, I don't know if Canada's going to be okay. I think in part, it depends on who's in power. Um, and that's why the next few years are going to be really critical in Canada. And, you know, sometimes we don't think about these issues when we're voting, right? We don't think about reproductive health and justice when we're voting. We think about, okay, who's going to keep my taxes low, uh, those sorts of things, interest rates, th that, that sort of thing when, when we are voting. But ultimately, you know, what happened in the States didn't happen overnight. It happened, this evolved over many, many years. And the writing was on the wall for at least 10 years in the US that Roe v. Wade was at risk. And I, I'm not going to say people ignored it, but I think it was just sort of a, you know, back background risk factor until it actually happened. So we are concerned that, you know, given that such a major advance in women's health and access to reproductive rights and abortion was overturned, that we are not immune to this, right? It just, just like uh, their, their political views and laws can change, ours can as well. So it becomes even more important that we continue to advance the science, that we partner with advocates, that we make sure that our healthcare systems and our doctors are trained in how to have these conversations, that we engage in preventive medicine. So, you know, we empower people with good sex education. We know good sex education reduces unintended pregnancies, it reduces abortion rates. And there's, so there's a whole trickle down effect of the benefits of early comprehensive sex ed in kids. Well, we're certainly in favor of that. And uh, the earlier and more comprehensive, the better, right? Yeah, completely. Okay. Dr. Brado, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak with us today. Where can people go to get your book and to get the new uh, additional workbook? Yeah. So I'm pretty active on Twitter at Dr. Lori Brado, and you can find my books and you can read a bit more about my work at my website, lauriebrado.com. If you're interested in our research and participating in our research trials, we've got a fantastic study taking our mindfulness-based intervention and delivering it online in a program we call eSense. You can find out about that um, at my research website, which is broadolab.com. Well, I love that you have a personal website and a research website that <laughs> <laughs> we will put links to both of those in the show notes. Thanks to Dr. Lori Brado for joining us on Mindful and to you for listening to today's episode. You can find, download, stream, and subscribe to Mindful wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was written and published by me, Eric Bullman. It was hosted by me and Catherine McLaren, edited and produced by Jamie Montgomery. Our theme music is Avenues by David Taylor. 